Over the last few decades, human pathogens have emerged at a rate unheard of in human history, mostly from animals. So, uh, you know, HIV has been traced back to the butchering of primates in the bushmeat trade in Africa. Mad cow disease was because we turned, you know, cows into carnivores and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 been traced back to these exotic uh, live animal markets. But, you know, our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA right here on industrial pig operations in the United States. So when we take thousands of animals and cram these filthy football field-sized sheds to lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, it's just a breeding ground for disease, right? It's not just the sheer numbers and the overcrowding the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs, the lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight. Put all these factors together, what you have is kind of this superstorm kind of environment for the emergence and spread of the super strains of influenza. Tragically, we don't tend to shore up the levees until after disaster strikes. And the bottom line is it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. This is the time, if you're ever going to start a, a exercise program or stress reduction or get your sleep schedule right or reduce stress or start eating healthy, this is the time. Let's take advantage for those of us who uh, are privileged enough not to have to be out on the front line to clean up our act and not only protect us against the current infectious disease threat, but from chronic disease threats in the future. We really have to accelerate the movement away from animal agriculture towards plant-based milks, plant-based meats, plant-based egg products. And so this message to better take care of ourselves and family has never been more poignant. That's Dr. Michael Greger. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Greetings, fellow sequestered earthlings of the coronavirus universe. I remain Rich Roll, this is still my podcast, and you, my friends, are always welcome. Today, my good friend, Dr. Michael Greger, returns for his fourth drop on the pod, the king of how not to books, books like How Not to Die, How Not to Diet, and also the man behind nutritionfacts.org is back, and he's got a new how-to book for a refreshing change. It's called How to Survive a Pandemic, to be specific, which I think just as easily could have been titled, How to Be Very Timely and On Point. Given what we are all collectively enduring right now, I think this one is important. It's super instructive, it's powerful. And if there's anything certain in the known universe, given what Dr. Greger will soon inform you about the relationship between animal food production and the advent of zoonotic disease, it's a conversation that will leave you highly motivated to once and for all put those animal products in the rear view. But how? How do I do it, Rich? I get that question a lot. So to answer your prayer at scale, we created an easy to use digital platform that takes all the guesswork out of starting and most importantly, sustaining a healthy plant-based diet. It's called the Plant Power Meal Planner. And what it does essentially is craft highly customized menus for you from our huge library of recipes, literally thousands of recipes. It also creates grocery lists to make shopping for ingredients hassle-free and even grocery delivery integration in tons of metropolitan locations, which means everything you need to eat right just shows up at your doorstep. 
it's really an incredible, powerful tool. I'm really proud of it. And it's crazy affordable, just $1.90 a week. So listen to Dr. Greger. And when that's done, go to meals.richroll.com to learn more and sign up. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. 
We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Dr. Gregor. I feel like he was just on the show because he kind of was, but... I just had to bring him right back for a powerful primer on all matters pandemic pertinent. Because here's the thing, we all know the good Dr. G as a nutrition expert, but less well-known is the fact that before all of that, he basically had an entire career in public health specializing in infectious disease, including sounding the pandemic alarm. In fact, Dr. G wrote a whole book about this back in 2006, but nobody was listening then, and now they are. So Michael dusted off that 2006 book. He got to work dialing it up to date with the latest science and put it into the world. It's called How to Survive a Pandemic. It's available as an audiobook or on Kindle with a paperback version coming August 18th. So this podcast is basically my opportunity to ask all my personal coronavirus questions, questions you likely have as well about what exactly is happening, how we got here, hint, it has something to do with human interaction with animals and animal agriculture, how we prevent things like this from happening in the future, like maybe start putting an end to factory farming, there's one idea, and what we need to know to be and stay safe. Like, what is the difference between COVID and a typical flu? How is it being transmitted specifically? And why do some people fall gravely ill while others experience only mild symptoms? What's the deal with herd immunity and what's it gonna take to get there? How do we make sure our immune response is intact and healthy? What's the deal with all these different kinds of tests and when is it appropriate to get tested? Do I need to constantly disinfect everything like my groceries? How important is hand washing? What exactly is the utility of masks and what kind of masks should we be wearing and when should we be wearing it? Perhaps the most fundamental question of all, how can we stop the emergence of pandemics in the first place? Again, let's look at our dysfunctional relationship with the animal kingdom. And a good place to start is the eradication of factory farms. It's scary out there, but Dr. G, ever the enthusiastic optimist, is hopeful. That gives me hope. 
and hopefully gives you a little hope as well. So here we go, round four with the great Michael Greger, MD. Back in the house. Ready to rich and roll. So good to see you. I feel like I just saw you, but it was a little while ago. That <laughs> wasn't that the long. The world was very different. It's pandemic time. It all <laughs> it's all out the window. Together. Um, what's super interesting about you is that we all know and love you as this nutrition specialist, expert, the man behind nutritionfacts.org. But actually, you earlier in your career had this whole path in public health specializing in emerging infectious diseases. And you've been shouting from the mountaintops about pandemics for over a decade. So here we are, and suddenly that book that you wrote back in 2006 is more relevant than ever. You've got this new book out. So I can't wait to just roll up our sleeves and get into what exactly is going on right now. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, first half of my professional life was all emerging infectious diseases. In fact, I mean, that's most of my scientific publications. That's how mm -hmm. I got on Oprah. That's how I got on, you know, all the, I mean, that that was really, that was, and no one was listening, right? I mean, yeah. um, in fact, the whole public health community was warning people about the coming pandemic. No one listened. And I was like, all right. Um, uh, you know, I'll, 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 let me, let me <laughs> default to the leading cause of death every single year from, mm. from 1919 to 2019 for the last hundred years, always re realizing in the back of my mind, well, you know, the reason that heart disease wasn't the leading killer for the last 101 years is because in 1918, there was a pandemic flu and right. the next one's coming. And when it comes, all right, then I'll find then maybe when people listen, um, I'll be able to to delve back, and that's how I was able to you know scramble right. to write a book in such a short time. It's because the research was done. It was just a matter of you know uh, throwing uh, together a few chapters on the on the current situation, right? And, you know, well, the first book was really focused on bird flu, right? Do you think if at that time people really perked up and paid attention, that that would have shifted your whole career trajectory? You would have stayed in that field. No, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's as critically important today um, as it was back then. In fact, the leading candidate, according to the CDC, of the next pandemic after COVID is a bird flu virus by the name of H7N9, mm. which is a hundred times deadlier than COVID nineteen. Is that and, the one with the fifty percent? No, uh, it only has a 40% right. mortality rate. So H5N1 um, was higher, but has uh, has dwindled as H7N9 has uh, taken to the forefront of a global spread. And so that's the leading candidate, although H5N1 still may be waiting in the wings of chickens, of course. Um, uh, H7N9 seems to be the most likely. And so instead of one in 250 people dying, it's 100 times deadlier, 40%. And so, you know, uh, as devastating as COVID-19 has been, to lives and livelihoods around the world, um, you know, uh, you know, imagine a pandemic, uh, you know, uh, that 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 you know that every uh, other person right. Perishes. So so the well so you know uh, you know 1918 uh, had a two percent uh, fatality rate, mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, but imagine a pandemic where <sighs> billions are infected, but forty percent people are, and that was and that was the last time a bird flu virus jumped directly to humans and triggered pandemic. It caused the deadliest plague in history in the nineteen eighteen pandemic, right. um, and uh, so it's you know uh, you know it's it's just a it's just a matter of time, and so but there's the, the good news is 
there's something we can do about it. Mm. You know, just like closing down live animal markets and, you know, the uh, wild animal trade will reduce the risk of future coronavirus pandemics, reforming the way we raise domestic animals for food uh, may help forestall the next uh, killer flu. Well, that's a good place to start. You know, the very uh, root cause of what's leading to these pandemics that, you know, ultimately are an inevitability. So let's start there. I mean, we're all kind of familiar with what uh, triggered COVID with the pangolins. I guess that's the reigning theory of the moment as to how this began. But there's a larger issue at play here, which is the institutionalization of animal agriculture and how we're creating, you know, on a systemic basis, the breeding ground for the next pandemic and the next pandemic. And, you know, perhaps much more virulent strains of a virus that are gonna be far more deadly. Over the last few decades, human pathogens have emerged at a rate unheard of in human history. Um, uh, and it's emerged from where? Mostly from animals. So, uh, you know, HIV has been traced back to the butchering of primates in the bushmeat trade in Africa. Uh, mad cow disease was because we turned, you know, cows into carnivores and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 been traced back to these uh, exotic uh, live animal markets. But, you know, our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in, in Asia, but was largely made in the USA right here on industrial pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time, we might not be so lucky. Well, it just came out that last week, this new story about uh, pigs in China yeah. and, and a couple slaughterhouse workers getting sick. Yeah. This is very alarming. So it's actually, yeah, it's, a, it's actually a, a new mutation of that very swine flu virus, this triple mm -hmm. hybrid mutant, which contains mm -hmm. genes from both human, uh, pig, and avian flus um, that was uh, new enough to the human immune system that was able to, yeah. to spread around the globe and is still with us to this day as a seasonal flu. But, uh, but all it has to do is, you know, change enough to kind of overwhelm the pre-existing immunity. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, so, but we happen to pick the two species that, that are vulnerable to the virus, the only known virus on the planet capable of infecting billions of people within months of time, and that's influenza. Um, and so most species actually are, don't get the flu, very few species. So it's pigs. And it's birds. birds. Um, and chickens too, or chickens so is something chickens, different? Yeah, no, so, so uh, chickens uh, emerges in waterfowl, um, but in, in fact, as a waterborne innocuous um, aquatic virus and only travels to the lungs when placed in a land-based bird, a terrestrial bird like chickens. And how would the duck and a chicken ever get together? At the, uh, live animal markets. It's a way mm. to pack them both together. And once the virus finds itself in... Um, the guts of a chicken, it no longer has the luxury of easy waterborne spread, right? Chickens aren't paddling around in the pond. Uh, so it's a fecal oral um, route in ducks and waterfowl as it existed for millions of years before we domesticated ducks. Once it finds a way into a chicken, it needs to mutate or die. Um, it has to find a new way to travel and uh -huh. it does that by changing to an airborne virus actually infects the lungs. And that makes it that much more uh, uh, risky for terrestrial mammals such as ourselves. So, what, so yeah, so go it goes ahead. into it. It, it goes into um, uh, you know chickens as this harmless virus comes out as the flu. Uh huh. And what is it specifically about 
CAFOs, animal agriculture that's fomenting this? Is it just the crowded conditions? Is it the way that they're, you know, immersed in their fecal matter? Is it the way that they're fed or treated? Like, what are the contributing factors yeah. in so, that So, yeah, system? all of the above. So, when we take thousands of animals um, and cram these, you know, filthy football field-sized sheds to lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, it's just a breeding ground for disease, right? It's not just the sheer numbers mm. and the overcrowding. Um, but the, you know, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs, the lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight, put all these factors together. What you have is kind of this super storm kind of environment for the emergence of spread of, uh, of this perfect storm environment for the emergence spread of super strains of influenza. Um, tragically, we don't tend to shore up the levees until after disaster strikes. And the bottom line is it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that when you have so many of these animals in these types of conditions, that that then creates a situation in which you're kind of exacerbating the potential for mutation, right? Because if it's getting spread amongst that population, then there's an exponential amount of it. And so it's replicating more rapidly. It's like crowding a thousand pigs in an elevator, right? One of them sneezes. Like, what do you expect would happen? It's really the perfect, if you want, if you were a mad scientist and wanted to breed a deadly, um, uh, you know, a flu virus, this is exactly the kind of conditions where you do. In fact, they actually do these so-called serial transmission studies in a lab where when you want to make a pathogen uh, more deadly, more lethal, more virulent, what you do is you pass it from animal to animal normally, Virulence is a control. There's a there's a there's a there's kind of a balancing act, a, 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 a teeter totter between virulence and transmissibility. Mm-hmm. If the that's why in its natural state, influenza is completely harmless. Ducks never get sick. No waterfowl gets sick because a dead duck can't fly. That virus wants to get to the next lake. How does it do that? By completely being innocuous, harmless, no symptoms. The duck doesn't even know it has it and just multiplies in the intestinal wall and, and goes on. Okay, but only when forced into an environment where there's no cost to the virus to get virulent. I mean, the, the virus would like to get more virulent. The more virulent it is, the more it can produce uh, titers of virus. You have a huge viral load, but it has to be really, really quiet about it mm-hmm. because it might not spread as far. But as soon as you remove that restriction, remove that constraint, when a virus can knock you like a two by four and still transmit to the other because you're so packed. proximity. To, right, yeah. because even immobilized hosts can spread when that happens, then there's no limit to how virulent the virus can get. And that's what we had in the trenches of World War I, which is where um, we think the 1918 virus emerged from the trenches. Mm. And basically, from the virus's standpoint, those same trench warfare conditions exist today in every industrial chicken shed, in every industrial egg operation, confined, crowded, stress, but by the billions, not just millions. That's fascinating. Yeah, I never thought about it in those terms. Normally, yes, the virus would not want the host to perish because then the virus perishes. Exactly. But when there's a population of you know hundreds of thousands of these animals, What's one dead animal if it can jump to the next one Absolutely. and continue to 
populate. So there's an evolutionary advantage. There's a selection pressure to get even more virulent, to kill the animal quicker, to make this violent hacking cough. I mean, to, to and so it just ratchets up, but only in those kind of rare circumstances, mm. either in the lab, where you can um, literally dose an animal. You you stick a needle to, the, uh, down their throat, and then um, and, and then you can take take their lungs, you grind them up in a blender, and you stick that needle down another animal. But you do that you do that ten times. You can have a and you can take a harmless virus turned into a lethal um, virus, kills one hundred percent of the animals because wh which virus is selected for when there's guaranteed transmission to the next one, the one that that outcompetes the others, mm. right? Otherwise, normally it would you know if if. In the millions of years where influenza existed naturally, if some crazy mutant strain came up that was more, it would instantly be selected against and die there with that animal because it's just not going to spread much farther. But right. we just created this system to create, you know, virulent, um, particularly virulent pandemics. So are, we may always have pandemics, but there's a difference between a pandemic with a 0.4 case fatality rate, one in 250 people dying, mm -hmm. and something like like a so-called Category 5 pandemic, that's the CDC's, uh, uh, has a pandemic severity index similar to the like hurricane severity index with Categories 1 through 5, and a Category 5 pandemic starts at 2% mortality. So 19, there's only been one Category 5 pandemic in 1918, and that's, but that's just where Category 5 starts at 2%. Wow. And so COVID's, never before- COVID's a 2 so, right? No, COVID's 0.4. Oh, okay. So the, the but a category, what category is it in? So, oh, so so that makes it a, a category one pandemic. Right uh -huh. now, we are in a category one pandemic, which is less, oh, a category, sorry, category two pandemic, uh, point, uh, under 0.5. Mm. So we are category two pandemic, um, and, and never before has there been flu viruses with a fatality rate on order of something like Ebola or untreated HIV. Um, so you have the worst of both mm -hmm. worlds, something like the common cold, a respiratory virus, easily transmitted, infecting a significant percentage of the population within months, and a virus with just unprecedented lethality with H5N1, H7N9, and 10 other bird flu viruses that have emerged completely unknown in the last few decades ever since um, we started exporting our Tyson model of industrial poultry production to South Asia. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. What what determines the jump to humans? So, How does that work? Because we're we you know we hear about these wet markets in Asia, and that's really about one species to another species, and then a subsequent jump to humans. Right. Right. And so right for the the there's been three deadly coronavirus outbreaks: SARS, MERS, and COVID nineteen, and they all seem to have evolved. It seemed to involve this transitional species starting in, in bats, the reservoir species, just like for influenza, it's ducks and waterfowl, shorebirds uh -huh. are they. Um, but yeah, but um, the virus is so far removed from um, something that can affect humans. There has never been a single um, a reported um, kind of human clinical infection from a duck virus. I mean, they all all influenza viruses derive from duck. There's one case of uh, someone 
cleaning out a duck barn, got a little piece of straw in there, I got a little conjunctivitis, a little pink eye. That's the worst a duck virus has ever been able to do, only through these land-based terrestrial uh, uh, birds like quail and chicken. Uh -huh. Um, is the virus able to mutate into the flu, the, a respiratory pathogen that can infect humans and pigs um, and other uh, kind of land-based mammals? So in coronaviruses, bats are the original. And the reason why bats and ducks are uh, have these herd viruses is because they congregate in massive, um, uh, in the huge herd, and it's a Root, bat roosting colonies can be a half million mm -hmm. um, uh, bats together, and only under those kind of circumstances can you get a can a, you get a a, a a viral pathogen able to um, infect large populations. Because normally, um, if there's just small colonies of various animals, everyone gets immune to the virus. The virus dies, so you don't have so you can't really have kind of a herd virus. But when you have these massive colonies of hundreds of thousands of ducks or bats, they can develop. They, they can start basically an infection on one side, go all the way to the other side of the population, and then this one loses immunity and so yeah. go back and forth and it can exist. So in bats, we have these coronaviruses, but it take, but people aren't getting infected directly from bats. They're an intermediate species kind of halfway um, between kind of the stepping stone species between bats and people. Um, in the case of SARS, it was this cat-like creature called the civet cat raised in these uh, live animal markets. In the case of MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, it was camels, it was bats to camels to people. In the case of COVID-19, leading candidate um, for the intermediate species is these pangolins, these scaly anteater-type uh, creatures, again, um, in these live animal markets where you can get this kind of confluence of unusual species that you'd never really get together in nature and can and create these viruses with mm. uh, characteristics we haven't seen before. Mm. And what is the degree of difficulty for you know, the virus that's you know, being harbored in the chicken farms, the pig farms, to jumping to humans? Like, what are we looking at in terms of, you know, we've had swine flus, et cetera. We've never seen a true pandemic emanate out of factory farming yet. I mean, you're painting it. 2009. A, so that- 2009 was our first factory farming pandemic. We just got lucky. That was a category. There is a narrative that that came out of China though, but did that actually come out of- United States so it was actually, so factory the farm, farms, or yeah, what's so the, the origin the, so story six there? Six out of eight genes. So uh, influenza viruses, influenza virus has a segmented genome. There are eight genes. I mean, six out of the eight um, came from a, a triple mutant hybrid. This was a um, never before described bird, swine, human virus. A virus mm. with genes from all three species that arose um, in North America. Um, and in fact, the first, the double hybrid first was discovered in uh, this uh, factory farm, um, uh, a gestation crate facility of pregnant pigs in, in Newton Grove, North Carolina. Um, very rapidly, this uh, triple hybrid mutant spread throughout North America. And then we exported it um, to Mexico. We exported it around the world um, where it mixed with a Eurasian swine flu to create the pandemic virus. Wow. But six out of eight um, mm -hmm. of, the, of, the, of the pandemic virus came, was birthed. Um, in uh, um, here in North America. Well, given that factory farming is essentially how you know most Americans are getting their food and the prospect that this is a breeding ground for future pandemics, what do we do? I mean, is there a solution short of eradicating this entire system? You know, I wanna talk about Cory Booker and, and Elizabeth Warren's new bill that they just proposed um, to 
uh, I'm not sure exactly what the details are, the, the Farm System uh, Reform Act and what's packed into that, but you know, what is the path forward? What is the solution to this? Knowing that we can't flick a switch and end factory farming overnight, how do we get on, on you know, the right side of history with this? So, well, it's important to realize that the public health community has been, has a consensus. So uh, the American Public Health Association, which is the largest and oldest association of public health professionals in the world, came out um, over a decade ago calling for a moratorium on factory farms, no more factory farming. Um, so the public health community has recognized mm -hmm. the risk and has been shouting from the rooftops and no one's been listening. So this is, I mean, this is this is what the public health community understands to be the risk, not only for the emergence of antibiotic resistant bacteria, but because of the threat of pandemic flu, um, both from uh, poultry production and from pig production. Um, and certainly there are things we can do to reduce the risk. Um, so for example, um, uh, uh, we have, there are studies showing that just providing straw bedding for pigs so they don't have mm. the immunosuppressive stress of lying on bare concrete their whole lives significantly reduces swine flu transmission rates. Um, the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production came out um, uh, uh, specifically against these extreme confinement practices like the gestation crates for pregnant pigs, these kind of veal crate-like boxes that are um, where pigs, uh, pregnant pigs are kept for, for months at a time, and specifically because of the human health risk of putting animals under these kind of conditions. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, these are the, the animals need a little social distancing, frankly. They could use a little <laughs> yeah. breathing room um, at this point. Um, but if we really want to eliminate this threat, we really have to accelerate the movement away from animal agriculture towards plant-based milks, plant-based meats, plant-based egg products. And mm -hmm. for those of you thinking that such a move is a pipe dream, have you looked at a dairy case lately, right? Major U.S. dairy companies declaring bankruptcy because of crashing fluid milk sales because of this preponderance of new consumer choices. Um, and we're seeing that same kind of um, increase in uh, consumer choices in the meat aisle as well. And ironically, who is leading this charge in innovating us out of this precarious situation? Tyson, Purdue, Smithfield, Hormel, uh, JBS, the largest meat packers in the world, all right now have uh, plant-based um, uh, meat products mm -hmm. out now. JBS, the largest meat packer in the world, just came out with their own line of plant-based. You know, Smithfield is partnering with KFC in China to put plant-based chicken nuggets on the menu. I mean, these are, um, so this isn't like the tofurkeys of, yeah, for some vegetarian niche product, right? Um, they are recognizing, um, particularly with the, the, the pressures on the, on the you know, the, the, the source chain that, that, that this pandemic has shown, it's more profitable. It's you know less labor costs, less food safety issues. I mean, all mm -hmm. down on down the risk of the externalities of business as usual. They see the writing on the wall, and they're reorienting themselves as protein companies rather than meat companies. Um, and so um, that so they're the ones that that are really leading the charge in terms of putting these um, these products into the hands of kind of you know regular, you know, regular consumers. Mm -hmm. And now from a personal health standpoint, you know, it'd be better if they just ate some black beans. But from a pandemic threat standpoint, zero risk. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it's imperative that these companies pivot and evolve. They're just responding to market pressure and consumer demand. Right. They see that this is the direction that people are moving in. They understand that they're gonna quickly become antiquated unless they diversify their product line and it's working and that's why they're doing it, right? We all hear about the Beyond Meats and the Impossible Foods, but it is interesting that these stalwart, you know, gigantic conglomerates that have been around forever are also waking up to this reality and making these pivot shifts. Yeah. The question is, are we gonna do it fast enough? Well, I mean, the clock is ticking. I mean, that's why, And but if there, so what we needed, is some kind of kick in the pants, some kind of dress <laughs> rehearsal, some kind of fire drill to wake us out of our complacency, right? Uh-huh. And to really rethink the food system. And if, frankly, if this doesn't do it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, so, I, don't, I don't know if it is it. Well, but I mean, it you would, would really, hope it would unite us. It would really take something like this, mm-hmm. serious enough to really get people to rethink, wait a second, where did this come from? What can we prevent future much potentially worse um, uh, threats down the road? But now the idea of a pandemic is not some just, you know, something on policy papers and people have been yelling about in the scientific yeah. literature. Now it's real life. Yeah. And so, and we can, and, and we can see what kind of viruses are in the pipeline and realize, um, look, even more innovative approaches. I mean, for those out there who are like, you can you can yank that pork chop from my cold dead hands is the cultivated meat um, uh, revolution. The thought that, look, which Winston Churchill right, wrote in this 1932 Popular Mechanics article, you know, we'll, we will escape the absurdity in 50 years of growing a whole chicken just to get a wing or a breast or whatever. Well, now we're making real meat with Right. Animal cells, right? With muscle right. cells, right. right? Why make why make a skeleton? Why yeah. make all that stuff you're going to eat? Um, and again, from a personal standpoint, right? Uh, meat is meat. Mm. Um, certainly, from a food safety standpoint, it'd be safer. I mean, there's you don't have to worry about intestinal pathogens like E. coli, salmonella. When you're making meat without intestines, right? You don't have to cook the crap out of the meat if there's no crap to begin yeah. with, right? Um, and just like you don't have to worry about brewing up new respiratory viruses when they're you're making meat without the lungs, right? Um, and so that may that that's another route to to escape us from this sort of Damocles dangling over us, which hopefully finally people will recognize. Yeah. Well, a year ago, the Booker Warren bill would have seemed mm. preposterous, but here we are. The world is very different. Um, people are 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 paying attention to this in a new and different way. We all saw the news articles when the meat producers were putting out you know, ads about, or there were articles coming out about the supply chain problems and the threat to the workers. And there was this sort of conversation around, should these people go back to work? Should they not? I was looking at videos of some of these slaughterhouse workers who are basically putting themselves in harm's way and frustrated that the meat packer uh, employers were not enforcing some level of social distance or or kind of health standards to protect its workforce. Like this is, you know, also about those workers who are, you know, in peril as a result of this. And I think it is good that we are talking about these things. What do you know what the, the Booker-Warren bill is proposing? So uh, it, uh, it's re- it's proposing reforms like the uh, elimination of some extreme confinement practices, uh-huh, like which would- 
help. I mean, so I anything, um, uh, you know, reducing uh, broiler stocking density, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, with, in terms of meat type birds. And, and, I mean, and we can show in laboratory settings, you double the space per bird and you can dramatically drop um, uh, influenza um, transmission rates right. um, uh, in, in these birds. And so, I mean, uh, look, you know, anything, all right, the situation is so dire. Anything is better than I mean, what's right, happening anything right we can now. Do. Mm. Um, and this is the time to have this opportunity. And look, right now is the last. I mean, at this point, the last thing we need to do is prop up the meat industry, even for the current pandemic. I mean, look at the, the comorbidities, the underlying health risk factors, increasing one's risk of COVID-19 severity and death, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, obesity, high blood pressure, all of which can be prevented, arrested, or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and look, you don't even have to be obese. Just being overweight um, put at, at a BMI of 28 puts you at the nearly six times the risk of a severe course of COVID-19. So that's being about 175 pounds at the average average American height. It's nearly six times the risk of a severe course. You know what the average BMI in the United States? 29. So being skinnier than the average American could still leave you with so much excess body fat that puts you at nearly six times the risk. Wow. Um, and yet, so, you know, so so this is the time to, you know, if you're ever going to start a, a exercise program or stress reduction or get your sleep schedule right or, re, you know, reduce stress or start eating healthy, this is the time. Let's mm. take advantage um, for those of us who uh, are privileged enough not have to have to be out on the front line to... Um, you know, clean up our act to not only protect us against the current infectious disease threat, but from um, chronic disease threats in the future. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. 
But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I want to get into some of those practices, but before we do that, I I want to talk about where we're at right now. We're looking at the potential of 100,000 new cases a day. You know, anybody who's looked at any of these graphs is seeing this, you know, spike upward. That's Mm -hmm. relatively, you know, it's pretty alarming. Uh, Clearly we've done a poor job at containing this. It's been, you know, a, a political disaster, a public health disaster. Uh, where, what is your sense of, of where we're at, how we've handled this and what we should be doing? Not just a poor job, but the poorest yeah. job. I'm like, I mean, the world over. So uh, you look at, uh, I mean, you don't have to go, you know, dig up, you know, South Korea and Singapore and Australia and, uh, and you know, these the, these New countries. Zealand. Look, the, uh, uh, look at Europe, for example, about the similar population as the U.S., um, Western Europe and they had, a, you know, got caught unawares just like everybody and had the spike but came back down. They truly have a wave, right? We're talking about is there going to be a second wave? The first wave in the United States We're never went away. We're still in the first wave. We're still in the first wave. And so if you look at the pandemic, uh, the, the epidemic um, curves around the world, they go up, they come down. Um, uh, even with comparable population sizes, except the United States, which continues to rage on. But, you know, you look at, you know, Japan. Um, where, you know, oh my God, they had 10 deaths. Or, or you know, Australia, mm. 100 deaths. They, the milestone, they reached 100 deaths. And they say, yeah, they have 10 times smaller population. Yeah, but we have 1,000 times more deaths. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, and so when you hear, oh, South Korea, they're having problems again. Oh, they had two, you know, they had five cases somewhere. In the, I mean, um, and, uh, you know, my concern is not just these deep red states, you know, like Arizona and Florida, but look what's happening in California. And I think it's because Californians never saw what New Yorkers saw. I mean, they never saw the hospitals overrun, right? Because we caught it early enough in California, the first state um, to really take action, um, that it worked too good. And so mm. people didn't see the hospitals mm. overrun. People didn't see, you know, uh, doctors having to make triage decisions as to who gets the ventilator and who doesn't. Um, and so there was this complacency that uh, in this kind of black and white thinking, like we're just back to business 
as the post is still taking precautions, particularly for those who are elderly, particularly those with these underlying mm -hmm. risk factors who are, are uh, still at great risk. Right, and once the protests began, the floodgates opened, it's very hard to put that back in the bottle. Right, although, you know, now that we're weeks out, um, uh, thankfully, uh, we did not see the uptick that was suspected by many. Um, and we think it's because of, uh, of being outdoors. Um, mm -hmm. So in 1918, um, uh, a lot of the transmission was actually driven by these uh, war bonds marches uh, where they got people together during the pandemic to raise money for World War I and, was, and, uh, and uh, that was implicated in a lot of spread. So even outdoors, but now with um, the current virus, um, uh, whatever the transmission, it really does seem the high risk is enclosed indoor, poorly ventilated, crowded spaces for extended periods of time. That's where these so-called super spreader mm. events are happening. Um, that's where you can get, you know, 60% uh, of people walking out of a bar um, who are later coming down infected. Whereas, despite the crowded conditions outdoors, um, you have, once you're outside, you have the ultimate ventilation, one little air current in, in your, you know, any little respiratory droplets um, or aerosol that gets, you know, that you, exp you breathe out, even if you're chanting, even if you're yelling, even if you're hacking because of tear gas. These are, I mean, these are conditions built for the virus. You, the, the, you know, all you need is a little breeze. And uh, we did not see that kind of, uh, right. thankfully. It seems that we're every week we're learning a little bit more and we're having to figure out, you know, how to dismiss what we thought was previously correct. You know, we were disinfecting all our groceries and we don't do that anymore. And I thought, are we supposed to be doing that? Should we be doing that? Or am I just being lazy? You know, wearing masks, of course, is a given. Um, but I think it would be helpful to just point people in the right direction in terms of, you know, just kind of piggybacking on what you just said. What are the most effective things that we should be doing? What are some of the things that we're doing that perhaps we don't need to? I just don't know where that demarcation right. line is. There's a lot of, and I'm trying to educate myself and I'm still confused. You know, I know that I need to wear masks. I've watched videos of, of where you can see how it impedes right. the expectoration right. of your breath. But, you know, if somebody's smoking a cigarette, you know, 100 yards away from me, right. I can smell it. So if I'm right. smelling that, does that mean that if that person is infected that I'm right. potentially breathing right. that too? Like yeah. it's it's very confusing even for somebody who's actively trying to get right. to the best practices. Right, right. right, so right. Even the most conscientious among us are still having difficulty separating kind of the wheat from the chaff and knowing what do we know, what we really don't know. And so I think early on, when we really didn't know the transmission characteristics of this virus, now all past pandemics have been influenza. Pandemics, And we know so much about influenza, um, it was easy for us to know, okay, we know exactly how it spread, we know exactly how to, to clamp it down, um, but this is a new virus. And so we really didn't know the transmission characteristics, and so something like the surface disinfection um, of anything coming into the house. I mean, I think early on, that was a legitimate act because we just didn't know how much the so-called fomite mm -hmm. transmission, the doorknobs and light switches and toilet flushes and gas pump handles, we didn't know how much was contact, you know, then touching our mucous membranes, eyes, nose, and mouth before disinfecting our hands. Now we know that is um, uh, that is not the primary means of transmission. And so, and now that we've had enough time where people have been isolated in home and their only contact with the outside world was de de delivered groceries and delivered food. And there we have not um, seen uh, validated cases, um, uh, even among people that aren't taking any special precautions. Okay, so now we can breathe a sigh of relief and we can and we can take in this information and realize, okay, now we, we know what to prioritize in our mm -hmm. life in terms of, of reducing our risk. And what's the priority? 
distance, distance, distance. That's really, I mean, there's this really overinflated reliance on masks that give us a false sense of security. Remember, the masks are not to protect us. The masks are to protect other people from us, right? It reduces those respiratory droplets that come out of our mouth with conversational speech or just normal exhalation. And, and the thing about this virus, as well as influenza, is you become contagious before you start showing symptoms. And so days after being exposed to this virus, you can feel perfectly fine, look perfectly fine, and be exhaling virus with every breath. And that's why if you don't know who's infected and who's not, that's where the social mm -hmm. distancing coming in. Without sufficient testing, you don't know who's infected, who's not infected. So you just have to try to keep everybody away from everyone else. That's what the social distancing measures um, uh, were implemented for. And still the most important thing we can do to protect ourselves is, uh, I mean, it's like that's the good news. Like you cannot get the virus if the virus cannot get to you. And how do we get the virus? From other people. So reducing as much as possible our contacts outside of our household. And if we have to have contacts outside of our household, it's for as short a time in as well-ventilated areas as possible, particularly for those that are vulnerable or for those who come in contact with those mm -hmm. who are vulnerable. Mm. Um, and so... And so there's these, these gradations of risk. There's the riskiest behavior. There's the riskiest populations. Um, and then all the way down um, to, uh, you know, maintaining um, a sense of social cohesion. But, I mean, you realize, you know, as bad as COVID-19 has been, right, we still, the grocery stores are still being restocked. Mm -hmm. We still have electricity. We still have clean drinking water. Um, doctors are still showing up to work. You have a pandemic with something like H7N9, H5N1, when uh, case fatality rates like literally a flip of a coin, whether or not you die from this virus, then you could imagine how much worse the situation could be. That's why it's so critical. Yeah, it would be straight up apocalyptic if that was going on right now. And you hear stories, like I just read a story the other day about a super spreader, event, a wedding in India, and I think 90 people contracted the virus as a result of attending that event. But there isn't some situation in which every worker at Ralph's is mm. suddenly in the hospital, mm. which is interesting. Like, I'm like, well, those people are kind of around people all day. They're mm. wearing masks, but, you know, I haven't heard of any grocery workers, at least on at scale, contracting the disease. So we're they're indoors, but right. I guess they're all wearing masks. So we're still trying to understand what's behind the super spreading event. So some of them, like this this famous coral group, where eighty percent of those and like uh, um, got infected in one coral singing session. And you think, oh, well, not only are they indoors in one room, but they're you know they're 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 they're, mm. they're spewing virus out into the air. Um, and so that would that would that would make sense that that right. would be. And then you look at the meatpacking plants where it's so loud you have to talk really loud, shout into people's ears, and they're so packed tight. Um, and it's and it's chilly, which actually may play a role in enhancing um, uh, 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 viral stability. Um, and the, the prisons are now becoming hotspots again. That just makes sense. Um, and so we can explain a lot of these, but there may be characteristics of certain people. Um, or certain strains of the virus that do in kind of whatever situation that would have been in um, could, you know, lead to mass infection. And imagine being the bride and groom of that, right? Inviting uh. people, I mean, or or any kind of function, right? I mean, we really need to think before we have that, 
you know, before we bring yeah. over people to the house party. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. just we should think, you know, God, what if our, what if we hurt one of some one of our dearest friends, right, or our family? So, um, you know, we just re- this is the new normal. But Americans want We're what they want haul. when they I want it. I know, and this is this <laughs> is the we're seeing a little evidence of that. We we but well, this is the wake up call. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's really, and it's not going away anytime soon. Right. I mean, I talk about in the book written months ago that, you know, that there's no reason we should expect that this should go away in the summer. Other coronaviruses don't do blah, blah, blah. And here it is continuing to rage on during the during the hot summer months. Um, and so and so the only way to stop a pandemic is through herd immunity, having a certain portion of the populace immune to the virus. An infection can only burn through a population if there are enough susceptible individuals for viral sparks to jump from one person to the next. Immune individuals who can't get or transmit the virus act as firebreaks to slow the spread or like uh, control rods in in a nuclear reaction to break the chains of transmission. Now, ideally, this herd immunity is achieved through mass vaccination, right? Vaccines are a way to, to use like fire to fight fire. You use the virus to fight the virus by generating the benefits of infection immunity without generating the risks with disease and death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, without a vaccine, then herd immunity is only achieved the hard way through mass infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, looking at the characteristics of the virus we have now, we suspect herd immunity will be achieved when 60 or 70% of the population is infected. When there's that many people who are immune, this is assuming that we have some kind of at least short-term immunity, once 60 or 70% of the population is unable to get or transmit this virus, then the 30 to 40% who are completely susceptible are protected by everybody else and the virus stops. The pandemic ends. Um, And so the goal, particularly if you're older, Particularly if you're if you're sick, um, any of these underlying risk factors, you want to end up in that thirty to forty percent, where at the end of all this, the pandemic is over and you never got infected, you never were at risk, right? And that's the goal, um, and hopefully we'll be able to get that through vaccines. But you, we need to realize reality check: vaccines historically taken eleven years. That's the average, and has a ninety four percent failure rate, meaning ninety four percent never made to market. Um, now. Now, this is a totally different situation. We have literally 150 candidate vaccines um, uh, in the pipeline. Um, so the whole world is is jumping on this. So we should certainly see an accelerated timeline. But, uh, you know, you have to test on enough people to ensure uh, sufficient safety. And so we should not expect um, to have a Warhol vaccine uh, for the general population till uh, second half of next year. Mm. Second half of yeah, next year. It's yeah. a long way off and herd immunity is a long way off. Yeah. Short of that, what would have to happen? I mean, so we're about five to eight percent. Five to eight percent of Americans yeah. have been affected so far. Now, I mean, now unfortunately, some of the some of the early data on immunity, um, uh, it's possible that um, immunity to this virus may be short lived. Mm. So we're seeing that a lot with coronaviruses. There's other coronaviruses for which um, you come back months later. Um, so with, uh, like common cold coronaviruses, um, uh, forty five weeks. Um, so four to five weeks of immunity, and then you're just as susceptible again. So it's possible we get into a flu vaccine kind of scenario where you'd have to get vaccinated every year to maintain immunity um, to this virus. Um, but uh, some of the early data suggests that some of the people that got infected early may now 
um, start to become susceptible again based on the levels of, of so-called neutralizing antibodies in their blood, the ones that really target kind of the, the, the receptor mechanism of this virus. We have yet to test what's happening to their T cells. There's actually two memory immune systems in the body. The antibodies and the T cells both can retain memory of, of, a, of a infectious exposure and gave that lasting immunity. So far, we've tested antibodies, and they've been um, disappointing. It may only last weeks in terms of um, infection. So then herd immunity is much more difficult wow. to achieve. Um, but we we have yet to really see what's happening with with the, these memory T cells. Maybe they will give us um, the – and that's what we saw with SARS. SARS antibody levels went down. They had some memory Ts. Thankfully, we eradicated SARS from the planet. And how could we get rid of that deadly coronavirus? And we're having such problems with this one because with that one, you only became infectious after you started showing symptoms. In fact, peak infectivity mm -hmm. was 10 days after you started coughing. Cough fever 10 days later, you're spreading it. Ah, oh, put up fever monitors in airports, you stop yeah. it. I mean, still, we had 8,000 people got infected and killed about 10%, killed about 800 people. Um, but we could stop it. We didn't know that we could have a coronavirus where we'd have the flu-like infectivity during incubation period, infectious before show symptoms. And that's that's what that's why we're in this situation we're in today. Right, well, it would seem important to be able to answer that question about whether we can contract it again, Critically how long important. that immunity Critically lasts. important. Right. For, yes, for vaccines, for everything. So having, you know, there was this talk of having an immunity passport, right, proving I have right. immunity. Um, and of course, the concern, if that gave you some kind of perks, you had better jobs or whatever, people would infect themselves. Like I have like corona parties to, right. to, and then you could get the little immunity pathway. But if we really don't have lasting immunity, if it only lasts for a few months, um, then what, is, what does it even mean to have gotten the virus um, if you can get it again a few months later? Yeah, we've been doing antibody testing here. And with regularity, people are disappointed to find out that they didn't have it. <laughs> Everybody, you know, thinks, oh, in February, I had a, you know, I was sick. So right, I yeah. probably had it. I woke right? up with the sniffles, one of these. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, but, and, and, uh, and it's possible that having an asymptomatic case, like you test positive, but you never really, or you had mm. a mild case symptoms, you actually may even get less immunity from that. Um, and that, that it really may take um, because it kind of passed under your immune system radar and you just had – and that uh, that your body was able to squash it so quickly that you, your body didn't have to mount much right, of a response right, at all. Right, right, right. And so it, it, it considers it such kind of a mild – I'm not going to worry about mounting this constant – like right now, your, your bone marrow is pumping out anti-chickenpox vaccine uh, antibodies right now. And will for the rest of your life. If you had chicken pox as a child, as almost I everybody did. has. And so your body's wasting lots of energy every single day, making chicken pox, making measles, making anti, and it's a lot, it generates a lot of energy. In fact, immune cells expend more energy than your heart cells, which are pumping every single day. These are huge. They're literally pumping out millions of antibodies um, uh, every minute. Um, it's just these little, you know, I mean, but that's because that was our, one of our primary threats to our existence on this planet historically throughout evolution were the infectious disease threats because mm. bacteria and viruses multiply so much quicker than we do. Um, and so we had, uh, so it was this back and forth, um, you know, they'd get a little better. Our immune systems would, you know, catch up. 
Um, uh, but they've got a few billion year head start on us uh -huh. um, evolutionarily. And so that's why it, we use our brains to develop technology um, to be able to squash it. And vaccines are the technology that allowed us to, for example, eliminate smallpox from the planet Earth. Literally hundreds of millions of people used to die because of a disease that is now gone from the face of the Earth, except in some biowarfare labs. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, 1976, I think is the last case mm -hmm. ever, mm -hmm. thanks to vaccines. So anyone says, you know, questions vaccines, you know, we, 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 that was probably the greatest public health victory of all time was the elimination of smallpox. There is no longer a disease, and that was thanks to vaccination. Um, and so we should, uh, we should, we should hope and pray we have a safe and effective vaccine right. for this in the future. Yeah. On the on the subject of herd immunity, what do you make of Sweden's oh strategy? Well, uh, you can ask what they made of it, and they they now realize it was a mistake and have some of the highest infection and death rates in in Europe, in fact, around the world. Um, and so they they but 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 if we yeah. like we're looking at that at a discrete point on the timeline right. two three years from now if we're still grappling with this in a in a you know in a material way and they're not you know I, I feel like you know are we able to really evaluate the merits or demerits of that strategy right now well even uh, even in the most infected so even in Stockholm which I think has the highest um, post-infection rates they were still only at 25 percent Mm. Um, so they're raging now. And so they are still, now we're much farther from a uh, herd immunity situation. But um, the point is to keep the uh, disease and death at low enough rate until we achieve that, um, uh, until that uh, mm -hmm. a level of herd immunity is achieved. Um, and that has to happen kind of across the board unless you completely close off your borders like they were able to do um, very successfully in New Zealand. So if Trump called you up in the middle of this podcast and said, Gregor, I'm, 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 Get you, I need you in the White House. Tell me what to do. What? It, what? You know, if you're in charge, if you're right sitting right. in Fauci's situation right, right, right now, right what's right. the what's the program? Well, first of all, I'd say, look, I'm in a rich roll podcast. Can't, I got my priorities gotta wait, here. Gotta wait until we're done, right? Yeah, but yeah. but all right, but when I, but when I have a moment, um, uh, well, it, it's really putting the experts back in charge. So, I mean, in any other circumstance, the CDC would have been leading this charge. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been effectively silenced. Right. Um, uh, and and the same thing with, I mean, you know, it's like the well, CDC Rand Paul can't even told, do, told Fauci he was not being optimistic enough or something, muzzled I mean, him. I mean, I mean, and and so when when we don't have the experts in charge, I mean, this is this is this is, and this has not just happened in the U.S. It happened to a certain extent in in Brazil, in 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 UK, in a number of places mm -hmm. where they kind of have these kind of this kind of autocratic response instead of listening to uh, the two experts who have been sp spent, you know, the, their lives um, uh, doing this. And so there are good sources of information. I do want to put a plug in for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Michael Osterholm has a weekly podcast. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so is is one of the sanest voices, been doing this work for 45 years. And I remember when I was doing my work, I'm in mean, this, you know, uh, 20 years ago. I mean, he was uh, leading, you know, leading the charge um, way back then and uh, was, uh, you know, with HIV right. and on down the road. And so it's people like him and Fauci who have, this is, they've spent their entire lives studying this. And so then to have pandemic preparedness, um, you know, documents going back when I was writing about this and, that, and you know, I was kind of late to the game 14 years ago or so. 
Um, you know, we had, I mean, you know, and, but then we had all this, this, uh, you know, these plans and they just threw it out the window. I mean, we just didn't mm -hmm. follow, um, uh, what we needed to do. And, and part, I mean, it's very difficult politically because if it doesn't, if you're not, if it doesn't look like you're overreacting, then you're not doing enough, frankly. I mean, because we have the, it, it's the mathematics of, of exponential spread during a pandemic. Um, and now in retrospect, we know, oh, when we had one case, we had 10,000 and when we had, you know. Um, and so it, you're always late to the game, but it always looks like you're, 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 you know, uh, you know, chicken little, um, because, oh, there's only a few cases, you know, why, I mean, you know, let's not, uh, right. you know, let's not, uh, you know, the, the impact of the economy is such. Um, and this was a, certainly a new virus. I mean, so there's certain, for early missteps, there's, you know, uh, you know, very few places around the world, um, uh, were ahead of the curve. And the ones that were, like uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, they had recently suffered deadly coronavirus outbreaks. So Korea, South Korea in 2015 had this MERS outbreak. Mm -hmm. Some businessman came back from, from the Middle East and uh, started spreading. And so they had this testing and tracing public health infrastructure intact. Um, um, the other countries suffered recent SARS outbreaks, right? So they had experienced this firsthand on their soil. Their populace was ready. They understood the risks mm. and were ready to do whatever the experts were told was necessary. Um, and so they were able to jump ahead of the curve. And you get on this, you start these social distancing measures two days, three days early, and you have this mathematical modeling suggesting you could literally, you know, prevent millions of cases in the long run if, you know, a week earlier you did this, a few days earlier you did this. And that's because once it spreads out of control, um, it's very hard to kind of put the put the lid back on. Right. I think that's what we're experiencing now. I mean, the difference being that there wasn't that kind of popular will because the SARS and the MERS, like we knew about them, but they right. didn't really land on our shores in a meaningful way. Right. Right. In fact, right. SARS never did. So yeah. SARS hit Canada, never actually made it into the States. Um, and so, right. So we didn't have that, that history, but we certainly had experts who spent their whole lives preparing for that situation. In fact, I was part of these, we, there were, you know, these governmental drills where we all got together. Oh, we have these, you know, sick chickens in Maryland and, the, and what's going to happen and what kind of decisions we have to make. And there was all this kind of, you know, wartime game planning um, for, you know, uh, you know, departments. Uh, and, but, you know, it just, it just went out the window. Mm. Went out, and so, okay, so early missteps, Right, we uh, you can forgive around the world for countries that have not had a recent history, um, but then right, but now even even a few months ago, we were far enough in to realize the situation we were in and had to take it much more seriously. Yeah. But you know, there was this sense of well, we just have to lock down for you know ten days, or we just have to do this, and it's going to be very temporary. And like, and all the scientists are looking at each other, saying like, what world do you live in? Right. But having said well, that- Well, the right, messaging yeah. is so confusing and it's not cohesive right, and right. there is no sense that there's a real plan. So we kind of did that for a while and then we kind of tiptoed out and then suddenly we're protesting in the streets and now we're like, are, well, now we see the spikes, but are we going to go back home? And nobody's really, you know, taking the reins to articulate in a clear- cohesive manner, what the steps are that we all have to get on board with in order to get on top of this. So I just feel like it's just gonna, it's gonna run its course and people are gonna do what they're gonna do right now, short of some, you know, catastrophic spike that's gonna get people to wake up again. Cause getting them to go sequester in place after the many months of, um, you know, what we've been experiencing, I think is gonna be very difficult. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, that's I mean, but that's if if you can, the fewer people you come in contact with, spreading on mm. time outside. I mean, and the farther you can be away, and the more event. I mean, that's just you know. Now, having said that, if you are under the age fifty, none of these comorbid conditions, and the chances of you dying from this virus one in a thousand, right? I mean, we are talking about a, in the scheme of things, a wimpy virus. It's a Category two pandemic. Um, uh, um, but. Um, you know, we should all be, you know, well-informed as to what's risky, what's not risky, what can we do to reduce our risk, should we have to um, come attack tact, and then the, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of- Right. Well, setting aside the comorbidity factors, you know, if you're not obese, have high blood pressure, heart disease, et cetera, if you're not in a nursing home, you are in a much better position to combat this should you come into contact with it. But we've all heard the stories of young fit people who have either perished or gotten so tremendously ill that they're having trouble recovering. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this narrative that it's just like the flu or it's just a mm -hmm. little bit more serious than the flu. Like what is the difference between the flu like as we kind of understand it as Americans versus the experience of contracting this disease and what happens to your body when you have it? Yeah, so, the, I mean, so for those in the public health community, even saying something is as bad as the flu as a way to minimize it doesn't, it, the, for infectious disease folks, flu is a scourge that kills tens of thousands of Americans every, uh, you know, every year. Um, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, unfortunately, the annual vac uh, flu vaccine is not very effective, uh, between 30 to 50% decreased risk, which, hey, better than nothing. But, uh, you know, we're unable to really put a, put a lid on this virus, come surging back every year, and it's one of the leading causes of death. That's why I have a chapter on it, Now Not to Die, because one mm -hmm. of the leading causes of death um, uh, of, uh, you know, this uh, lower respiratory tract infections or pneumonia, uh, primarily caused by influenza. Um, and so, but this is, uh, but uh, a bad flu year has a 0.1 um, uh, uh, case fatality rate, uh, one in a thousand people mm -hmm. um, uh, getting it. Um, whereas uh, for COVID-19, we're looking at 0.4 now, so at least four times um, worse. And of course, it depends on on what age group you fall in, but that's kind of uh, all across the board. Unfortunately, here in the United States, even without taking obesity into account, over age 50, most Americans actually have some comorbid condition, either high blood pressure or heart disease or diabetes. And so, yeah. And so, so uh, you know, all these these lifestyle medicine pushes to enhance, you know, to, to increase our resistance against chronic disease sometime far in the future now is helping us right here right. now. Um, and so, you know, this message to, you know, better take care of ourselves and family has never been more kind of poignant. There isn't enough discussion about what we can do to buttress our immunity or, you know, make sure that our immune response is intact and healthy. And a corollary to that is also, I think there's this idea that we want our, our immune system to be as robust as possible, but is it possible that it can become too robust? Yeah, that's the irony here. So we have amazing studies showing that simple foods can boost one's immune function. So I have videos, nutritionfacts.org, talking about randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials showing that, for example, broccoli sprouts can reduce viral loads for influenza, decrease virus-induced inflammation, boost antiviral natural killer cell activity, but this isn't the flu. Unlike other common viruses, coronaviruses 
do not have not been shown to cause more severe disease in immunocompromised people, those with HIV, those mm. on chemotherapy, right? You think the, they're vulnerable to other infections, not to coronavirus infections, including COVID-19. You say, wait a second, how does that make any sense? Because it's your own immune system that's the primary driver of lung damage during infection. During the second week of infections, the, during the infection, the second week of symptomatic infection with COVID-19, um, the virus can trigger what's called a cytokine storm, which is like an autoimmune reaction um, where your body overreacts. And in attacking the virus in your, uh, attacking the virus, your lungs get caught in a crossfire. And in, you know, burning down the village in order to save it, we may not make it through that process. Mm. So while I'm certainly in favor of common, you know, common sense, generalized, um, uh, you know, uh, advice to stay healthy, such as sufficient sleep and staying active and reducing stress, staying connected, albeit, uh, you know, remotely with friends and family, eating healthy. But I would not, you know, take a specific supplement, go out of your way, take a specific supplement or eat a specific food to boost some element of your immune system until we know more mm. about this virus. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Potentially, we could be doing more harm when we're well-intentioned and right. trying to do good. I've been hammering the broccoli sprouts and also vitamin D. We're hearing mm -hmm. a lot about vitamin D. So what are your thoughts on that? So, so there are a number of, uh, of vitamins and minerals that are critical for optimal immune function. Vitamin D is one of them, vitamin C, zinc, selenium. But there's no evidence to suggest that supranormal levels have any benefit. So you need sufficient for a functioning immune system. So all the studies that show, for example, zinc improves um, hard outcomes for disease. So you give zinc to children with pneumonia, significantly uh, decrease uh, mortality rates. Randomized placebo-controlled trials, zinc versus sugar pills to children with pneumonia, those given the zinc, significantly less likely to die. But where has every single one of these studies been done? Sub-Saharan Africa, Ecuador, places where there is micronutrient deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So if you find a deficient population not getting enough zinc, 
giving them zinc can get bring them up to immune. But if you have someone with functioning immune system, um, would adding zinc do any do any good? If you're if you're having enough if you have enough vitamin C, have enough is there, there's no evidence that having higher levels. So right. having said that. Vitamin D deficiency is is, is rampant. Is rampant. Even in you know the 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 probably the shining example of this is they there was a study of skateboarding teens in Hawaii, right? And you just imagine them shirtless all day, right? And they, even they had these high rates. Um, is, why is that? Um, well, it's because we evolved running around naked in equatorial Africa, um, being baked in the sun all day long. And so if you want to know what normal vitamin D levels are, you measure people who work outside all day long. I mean, that's what that's kind of a natural level of vitamin D. Uh -huh. And so we were never meant to have these winters and inside and wear clothes and all these things that cut down on our natural vitamin D production. And so for people that don't get sufficient midday sun, um, particularly those with darker skins, particularly those who are older, particularly those with more body fat, uh, may need to supplement with vitamin D. Um, and so I would recommend 2,000 international units of vitamin D3 mm. a day for those who get insufficient sun. That's what I do because I'm inside all day. I got my D levels tested once. Uh, before I supplemented, and I had the D levels of an institutionalized elder, like these people who are like in nursing yeah. homes and literally never get outside. That was me in front of my laptop, or Mr. Nutrition, an right? Stuck in an airplane, yeah. right? I mean, I just never got outside. I got work to do. I got a uh -huh. book to write. What do you mean? Um, and so, right. So, I, in fact, two thousand was enough for me. So, two thousand would get most people from the general level up to optimal level. Right. Um, but for me, who got no sun, I had to take even more. So, a couple questions on that. It's not about mega dosing. It's about just making sure that you're not deficient. But I think it's probably safe to presume that there's a good chance you are deficient because so many people are short of getting a blood test to determine that. Um, if you are depleted or deficient, how long does it take to restore, you know, that balance? Does oh, that happen quickly or yeah, does it take in time? In fact, so rapidly that you can actually randomize people with infection to vitamin D while they have the infection and uh -huh. improve disease outcomes. Um, and so well, that's good you news. increase their levels while they, I mean, while, I mean, so literally within the days, it, it, mm. your immune system's like, come on, people, we need some vitamin D right now. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, so, right. So, so very rapidly were you able to improve and the same thing with these zinc studies, right? They gave them to kids, not before they got infected to see how they, if they got infected, how they do literally, they were already sick, gave them zinc. And then a few days later they were live or dead, whether or not they, they uh -huh. took zinc. Um, so, uh, and, and another problem with zinc is you, there isn't even a blood test. So you couldn't get tested for zinc uh, sufficiency if you want to, but if you are, so, uh, if, but if you're eating a nutrient rich diet, right, which is where all, where all vitamins and minerals come from with only two exceptions, which is from the ground. And so by eating them in plants, um, uh, I mean, that's where the, that's where we should get, um, ideally mm. with the two exceptions of vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin and vitamin B12, which is made by microorganisms, which blanket the earth, but we now chlorinate our water supply. Don't, don't get a lot of B12 in our water. Don't get a lot of cholera either. That's a good thing. We have a nice mm. sanitary system, but again, because the way we live in our modern world, like with vitamin D, um, because we live in a modern world, we have to yeah. make sure we get a regular reliable source of vitamin B12. What D other what other foods should we be mindful of making sure that we're getting that are nutrient rich in the way that we want or need it? 
given what's happening. So fruits, vegetables, legumes, the same litany, right? Beans, lentils, chickpeas, split peas, uh, whole grains, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, mushrooms, real food grows out of the ground, fields, not factories. I mean, it's the, you know, it's the- Basic stuff. It's the basic (laughs) stuff, right? This is where the nutrition comes from. You ever get tired of talking about this stuff? Oh my God. Well, I mean, but it's even more relevant now. And if if people are going to start eating healthy now because they don't want to die from the virus and and my my secret plan is for them not to get breast cancer in 10 years and not mm. to get die of a heart attack look whatever it takes for them right i would appeal to vanity tell people it helps with acne i mean anything to get people to eat healthy because i know it's going to save their lives later on and so maybe this will have the side benefit of starting some healthy habits they're going to stick with them and thanks to the pandemic are not going to you know uh croak in 10 years right. from a stroke what about viral load? We hear a lot about viral load, right? You you touched on it a little bit ago that that you know we want to avoid these you know indoor kind of hotspot settings where we're in close proximity to each other. But I'm not sure I fully understand the like the idea is that you could potentially come into contact with the virus, but if it's in a passing way, if it's not you know in one of those cloistered kind of settings that perhaps you're not going to contract the disease. That's your smoker 50 foot away. Right. We have this sense that one one viral particle, we get exposed to the virus and all of a sudden we, we get infected. And you must realize that even if someone with active tuberculosis coughs in your face, the chances of you getting tuberculosis is like 1 in 200. Really? Because you have an immune system. Now, if you have HIV or some, some mm. yeah, impaired, that's what our immune system is for. We, we were built to fight off invaders, right? And so only under certain circumstances when we have sufficient, it's called the viral load, when there's sufficient, and so, so you pick a pathogen and there's an average viral load for E. coli bacteria, one E. coli bacteria, the odds that that's going to trigger infection, even though they multiply like crazy, or one salmonella. No, it's it's you need you need a sufficient dose. That's why, um, like pasteurization. Mm-hmm. That's not about sterilizing milk. Cooking. It's not about sterilizing the meat. Um, it's about reducing the 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 number of infections so that it's below the infectious load. And so when it comes to respiratory pathogen, it's not that you you have to prevent yourself from breathing in one particle. It's you have to reach a sufficient number of infectious particles, um, and whether that's 1,000, whether that's 10,000, we unfortunately don't know yet with COVID-19, but we do know it for other respiratory pathogens. And you can, I mean, you can dose it out. And how do you do it? Well, um, they do studies with influenza with the young, healthy people that are really low likelihood of suffering, and they literally drip it in their nose. So they drip 1,000 in the nose. You see how many percentage of 100 people dripped 1,000 in their nose? They drip 10,000, right? And you can find out exactly <laughs> right, how much. Right, right. Um, so we don't have that data yet because mm-hmm. we have a new virus. But we always know that, I mean, otherwise, the, the, the disease would spread even more rapidly than it is. So it is um, intensity of exposure and plus duration of exposure. So everyone's freaked out about elevators, right? But how, how long are you in that elevator, right? Um, it, so it's, if yeah. you have someone in your home who is infected and you have a studio apartment and they're not in their own room, and they're hacking away. And they, yes, they have a they have a, fa- a cloth face covering, and they're we're trying to wipe down all the doorknobs. And we have the windows open and the exhaust fan on the stove going, and in the bathroom going. You have an air purifier, and like you were trying to do the best to uh-huh. maintain ventilation. You're living with that virus for a long period of time, and the and and that that puts you at extremely high risk. It's these mm. crowded settings 
Um, and in fact, they do the, now we have these beautiful studies where um, you know we've traced everyone back to one of these restaurant events, and you and they have the the little map of all the tables, right? All the people at yeah. all the tables, and here was the index case. And everybody over here got it. No one, even sitting next to them over here, got it. Why? Because the airflow was going this way, right? Wow. Here's the air vent. Here's the air vent. Everybody got it this way. And the person sitting three feet away, on the other hand, didn't get it. And it's because these little tiny, these are like little dust motes that you see when the sun's rays come in. They just kind of float around. But one little teeny breath would just, you know, blow them to one end of the room or the other. Mm. Um, and so it's, but it's just being in this cloud of little dust motes. Breathe in one, breathe in two, breathe in three. And it's and so when you look at these contact tracing apps and contact tracing protocols, they're asking who have you been close to, that's the intensity, under six feet, and for more than 15 minutes. Who've been close to, they, so, they, so if it's less is than 15, 15 minutes. Minute, that, is that random or is that calculated? Like, is there a scientific basis well, for the 15-minute uh, okay. window? Not scientific basis for COVID-19 because we don't know. Right. We don't know the parameters yet. But So that's based on other respiratory pathogens. So basically, all this modeling has to do, we have other respiratory pathogens. We have common cold viruses. We have influenza viruses. And so we have other data from viruses we think transmit very similarly based on the data we have so far. So based on that... Um, you know, we're not even going to call on the phone someone you spoke with directly face-to-face for 10 minutes two days ago, and now you're in the hospital. They're, that They aren't even uh, – the they likelihood the that they're – 15-minute threshold. But so 15 minutes, and they had to be close. So uh, 15 minutes, you spent all hours, but you were outside on a porch with someone who was eight feet away from you? Not even going to call them. Mm. Then what about – well, look – we're we're seeing a clampdown now on indoor dining. A lot of restaurants in, in you know in, in California at least they're closing. Some have opened. They're closing back down. There's you know every state's different, um, but airplanes seem like a bad idea. Recycled air. We're seeing these airlines announce that you know they're not going to restrict their seating. You just yeah. were on a plane. Yeah. I mean that just seems like the worst idea. So um, there's uh, the, uh, there's it's safer than being in a similarly confined space just because of the um, – they, they're actually HEPA, HEPA filtered through the air system. So you actually should have those th- – you can so, imagine being in a plane mm-hmm. not wanting that recycled air in your face. No, that's exactly what you want in your face. You should open all three of those nozzles if you're not sitting next to someone, point them all towards you. And you have this wave of air pushing past your nose for so when someone walks down Where's the that, hall. Does that air, down the hall. Is that air recycled, That though? is completely recycled. So but somebody in a, the back is but it's coughing through and it gets through. Okay. It goes through HEPA filter, which is not a perfect filter, but mm. it, it it does filter out the majority of the type of droplets we think are carrying this virus. Uh-huh. And so you have this semi-purified air as a buffer up. blowing It's pushing everything face, else away. Pushing everything else away. Now, th- that is not a... I would not consider that a low-risk scenario. Uh-huh. Um, but look, when you're gonna be on the Rich Roll podcast, you take you run the cost benefit. <laughs> you showed up, man. I appreciate that taking that risk. <laughs> what about uh, what about masks? Okay, so you go out in the world, you see all variety of masks from the guy with the who's got the bandana. Uh, around his neck, covering his mouth, but not his nose. You've got cloth masks like this. You've got the N95s. Like how important is it to have a high quality mask? What should we be thinking about when we're making that decision about what kind of mask? So the only mask actually designed to 
protect the user, the wearer, are these N95 masks, um, which were specifically designed for that purpose. They filter the they, air. They filter the air coming in. Mm. Um, and so that is what's being recommended for medical personnel. Um, and But those, that's not something you just, you know, that, that it has to be something that has to be fitted to your face. They actually go through a fitting process in the hospital to make sure you have the right size for your face. You can't even have a day of beard growth. So everybody with any facial hair covering mm-hmm. that that area is completely. Uh, I mean that that it breaks the seal. This is a, meant to be an airtight seal, and the material has this electrostatic charge that traps these microscopic little floating particles, um, such that you can wear it with someone coughing active TB germs, um, and and been very effective for COVID nineteen. Now, of course, you can infect yourself taking it on and off, and you know you can you can you, there can be an inadequate seal for whatever reason. Um, you really shouldn't use it. It's meant to be disposable. Now we don't have enough, even for medical professionals, and so they have to reuse the masks, and we don't have enough data to show how many times you can reuse it and how soggy you can get and what kind of protection um, still exists, and can you reuse it after you decontaminate it, on and on and on. And that's why, so no one is recommending N95 masks for the public, not because they don't work, but because we don't have enough to go around. Now, that's not our fault. Right? That is a failure of the national stockpile. Um, we should have had N95s for, for, for all medical professionals, as have other countries. Mm-hmm. In fact, other countries have provided you know, surgical masks for er- their entire populace for free. Um, um, and so now uh, surgical masks are meant to protect others. Um, from the wear. So that's why surgeons wear them. So they're not um, breathing germs into an open surgical wound. That's at least the theory. Although there's only been two randomized controlled trials and there's actually no drop in infectious rates during surgery, um, surgeons wearing masks versus not wearing masks. Oh, wow. So even surgical masks are of questionable utility um, for cutting down on disease transmission and the cloth face coverings, there's no data to suggest that they're useful. Certainly during uh, 1918, they were found not to be successful. Um, um, the uh, the benefit. So the, my concern is this false sense of security. Mm-hmm. The critical factor of getting infected is distance, 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 like the time and distance. And so if you if you feel invulnerable or you feel lower risk because you have a mask on and you would go places you would not normally go or you would stay longer or be closer to people than you normally would, that's how a mask could actually increase your risk of infection. Right. All, Indirect ways it could decrease risk of infection. The people who really need to be using, like the surgical masks, the cloth face covering, are for people who are actively hacking, coughing, actively symptomatic. They're, re- I mean, they are spewing out virus like crazy. They really need to be wearing masks. If you go outside, no one's wearing a mask, and you know you're infected, and you have a fever, and you're coughing, but you need to go to the drugstore, uh, you live alone, you need to go outside, and no one else is wearing a mask. The social cost of no one, you know, of putting on a mask and f- flagging, I'm infected. Um, you can imagine how people might not do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if by law or by decree or by social contract, everyone's wearing a mask, you are more likely w- being symptomatic to wear a mask and protect others. Um, and so that's a way how masks could really help, even if it doesn't necessarily cut much down mm-hmm. on the asymptomatic transmission, which is what we're hoping. We're hoping 
that those tiny little respiratory droplets that we spew out of our mouth during normal conversational speak, we're going to trap some of those with a cloth face covering. Do we have data showing that's the case? We do not. And so when the CDC came out and said, we changed our minds, uh, based on the new data or based on the, the latest science, um, we, are, we are going to recommend everyone wear cloth face coverings. And you say, well, you go to the CDC website. What's this new science? They cite the National, Medi uh, National Institute of Medicine. Um, and you go there and you say, what did they do? And they came out and said, masks are probably a good idea based on what data. But they're very clear saying we have no data mm -hmm. showing that they actually work. Theoretically, it could cut down on some of this transmission. Again, not not helping the wearer, but helping other people from the wearer if they're infected and not even knowing it. Um, but um, but this but my biggest concern: false sense of security. I have something over my face, so I can go to the grocery store twice as many times as I did before, and I don't have to exactly stay as far away from other people as I, you know. Mm -hmm. That's how masks could be a problem. Yeah, I think of it. Much like it's basically a uh, a tool for social distancing. Like it, it's sort of buying you a foot or two, right? Like it, it, instead of making sure that I'm, you know, six feet apart, maybe I can be five feet apart. Mm. But it's not doing anything more than that. Is that a, a or 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 you could imagine it working even better? The the presence of mask reminding people you're during a pandemic. It uh -huh. looks weird. Walking around like cashiers, people are on the street. It's amazing how quickly we normalize to it. And I, I don't think now. I just yeah, I think of it's normal. Right. I mean, you know? it's funny when you look at these nineteen. So I was at the National Archives when I was uh -huh. writing the book and doing talks about it and going through and seeing all the you know major baseball. You know, back in the nineteen eighteen, everyone's wearing masks and the mm. spectators. It just looks so weird to have people with. Um, you know, billy clubs and masks on, but now, right, it's amazing how quickly, but if it reminds you, for example, wearing wearing gloves on your hands, um, and the reason to say, well, there's no point in wearing gloves on your hands in public because you can just as easily infect, you know, rub your eye with your gloves as, as with your hands, and so you have to wash your hands gloved or not, but if having bright pink gloves on your hands as you go up to rub your, oh, you know, right, I mean, if that reminds remind you. you and you just look down and it feels weird and it's awkward and you're, everyone's looking at you because you got bright pink, if that keeps you mindful of the position of your hands, that could be a good thing. That could cut down on right. rates of it, you know, just because you're not, you know, it's not business as usual. If masks make it not business as usual, I mean, it's just a little, you know, it's constant reminder, oh, maybe I should be a little more careful in this situation or not go somewhere, uh, then that could help. Testing, testing, testing. We need more testing. Testing is the way that we're gonna get on top of this. When should we get tested? What kind of test should we take? There's all kinds of tests out there. What are these tests uh, telling us about how we're responding to this problem? Right, like I think, like oh, testing, testing, testing. I've gotten an antibody test a couple times. I've been negative. I haven't had the full swab mm -hmm. test. You know, do you wait until you're symptomatic? Like, when is the appropriate time to explore that? And I don't know. Go. Yeah. So testing, testing, testing only makes sense if it depends what you're going to do with those results. Um, and so testing is critical to know what's happening with the virus. Um, and without that information, then you're flying blind. 
So you want to know if some kind of stay-at-home order actually helped or not. You want to know, be able to trade with, with these protests. Would, would that lead to a big spike or not? It's still so early on we're gathering data. We're getting, gathering intel on our enemy. Mm -hmm. And so without testing, we're completely flying blind. And we just don't know how far are we away from herd immunity, what's helping, what's not helping, what are those super spreader events, how can we avoid those, um, what kind of, you know, occupations, what kind of restaurants are good, bad, you know, we don't know that if we don't have a sufficient test. And so we have been, and so the countries that have done the best, um, so South Korea, for example, they were ramping up to test literally within 10 days. They were mm -hmm. doing thousands of tests a day. And we weren't testing at all at that point. And it's interesting. They actually had the, we had our first cases on the same day, South Korea and the U.S. And you look at our curves, I mean, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. They basically right. vanquished it um, and uh, we're still raging on. So what are you going to do with that testing? Um, and so so basic, what's called seroprevalence testing, you just want to know, you want to do random sampling um, as part of, a, of an experimental setup to, in various areas of the country on a consistent basis to know what's happening with the virus where. Um, and so we can gauge that against our hospital capacity, how many ventilators we have in that county, how many, you know, how many ICU beds. And then we can make these decisions. Do we open? Do we close? Or when or should we be pumping the brakes mm -hmm. on this kind of social distancing? Obviously, we won't want as little as possible. We want to be able to have as much freedom of movement um, and continue the you know vitality of the country as much as possible until, unless we're going to start running out of beds, right? Until, um, uh, I mean, that's the whole point of flattening the curve. You're not necessarily reducing the number of people that are going to die or going to get sick. You're spreading them out. You're just, we know this many people are going to die, but if they all die, but if they all come in the hospital this week, then more are going to die than if they come out over the next 10 weeks. Uh, now, it's possible if we slow it to the extent that we hit a vaccine, aha, that's the game changer. So if we can slow things down enough, then then that slowing, flattening the curve strategy then does indeed result in fewer deaths overall because uh, then we finally have a, a, a method to stop the virus without getting people infected. Um, and so, so there, there, there's, a, there's certainly a place for testing in terms of individual testing. Um, uh, right now, there isn't sufficient tests available, and this goes back to re having enough swabs, enough reagents, uh, and, and now we're dealing with this with a future vaccine. We don't have enough glass vials in the world mm. to, to even put the vaccines in. So then, uh, then if you're going to use one if you're going to stick needles into one vial instead of having single-use vials and you have to add preservatives, that's another safety issue. I mean, I mean, so basic, and of course, public health community has been shouting about this forever. I have this in my book 14 years ago. The supply chains are not sufficient to have enough masks, to have enough PPE, to have enough um, of the basics we need. Right. So that's what we're running into the testing. And so it's like masks. What are the best masks? Oh, N95s. So uh, should shouldn't everyone have an N95? No, we can't because we need them for the frontline workers. Um, uh, even even uh, surgical masks, which are better than cloth masks, we're telling people not to use those because we don't have enough for the medical workers, and so that's why right. you know DIY make it at home um, with a with a sweatshirt, even though we don't have data showing that's necessarily um, as effective as people think it is. Um, so. Same with testing. What would we like? We want uh, weekly testing for everyone in the country, right? I mean, that, then we can, uh, but we, we don't have that capacity. So who should get tested? Um, it is people that are coming in contact with vulnerable individuals. That is the highest. So people working in a, a nursing home, we want that staff tested um, uh, because one case in that just can explode. 
right? Right. Um, so people in, you know, prisons that haven't already been overrun like uh, San Quentin, um, uh, you know, it's kind of, that, at that point, it's almost too late um, what we're seeing in some of these. But it's those kind of high-risk scenarios. These are the people we want regularly tested so we can pull them out of circulation. Actually, it's ironic. It actually goes back to the porn industry and HIV. That's how the porn industry has worked. Right. There was a deadly virus. And there was – yet there was an industry where you had to continually put yourself at risk to be an – so what did they do? They instituted a mandatory testing. I forget exactly how how frequently you need to get tested. And you could not work unless you come back with a negative test. And you would be out of work And they until figured then. out the interval, right? right? I think it was every two weeks and or so 10 they days had or Whatever like it was. Right. And so they could they – could, Constantly, and so that's what we need, and so that's actually we should, the, we should let the porn industry lead. The, they they're always out front with the, these, so, uh, with the these testing technological tracing, breakthroughs. That the whole concept of testing and tracing actually came from the STD world. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what you know. You have a case of gonorrhea. We need to find everyone you slept with recently, and we need to honestly call them on the phone and say, someone you've been with recently had had gonorrhea. You need to go get tested. So you don't then spread it to everybody else. That's the concept of content, of testing and tracing. It's so much more difficult now um, with this respiratory virus because it spread so much quicker. And so you can imagine how many people have you, uh, you know, had this kind of 15-minute window in, in, in close proximity in the last, and you're like, well, I just went to this wedding, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you can imagine how all of a sudden one wedding just makes this explosive number of contacts. Whereas if you have been trying to distance as much as possible, as far as possible, from as many people as possible. It's like, who have you been with? Ah, there's just been one, you know, one or two. We could contact those people. They could, and we could imagine how you can. Right. But uh, yeah, even, I mean, it would, we would need 100,000 workers and it's, and the problem is, and then you call people up and you say, someone you've come in contact with in the next few days, uh, in the last few days yeah. has tested positive. So you should quarantine for 14 days. Who wants to get that phone call? Right. Okay. You get that phone call. What are you going to do with that information? Are you really going to do it? You're going to all of a sudden, it's not no fault of your own. You're going mm. on your own business. Someone tells you, and now you've got to lose two, two weeks of work. Well, obviously you should be compensated for those two weeks of work. I yeah. mean, there's ways you can make it easier, but you can imagine even in the best case scenario where it all works, we're all testing people. You can still imagine how difficult it is to kind of put the rabbit back in the hat. What about some of these non-vaccine drug protocols that we're hearing about. I just read that the USA acquired the entire stock of remdesivir. Yeah, for one What's going dollars, on yeah. with all of this? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the US healthcare system, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, so this company comes out with this drug, has there's no drug cocktail to date that in peer-reviewed studies actually shown to decrease mortality. I mean, so that's, that's the, I mean, that, the, 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 that, that should be the standard. It's, I mean, um, it, uh, so what remdesivir has shown to do is decrease the number of days in the hospital. So the number of days that, that you're sick. And look, if you're sick with this virus, sure, give me something that cuts a couple of days. But does it actually help people live through this virus? I mean, that that's the that should be kind of the goal. Treat standard. like one aspect, like uh, like alleviate some of the symptoms of of the disease. That or what would is it be doing? good, but it's um uh, it, it seems to be slowing the virus down such uh-huh. that your immune system can get a can get a can get a, I see. Uh, you know, and similarly, there's a, there's a drug called Oseltamivir or Tamiflu for influenza does a very similar thing, does not actually decrease mortality from influenza, but may shave a day or two off of, of hospitalization of a severe course. So they still give the drug, but whether or not the government should be spending, bil- giving billions of dollars to big pharma to buy these drugs. So they're selling these, the remdesivir for $3,000, of course. Um, and so, 
and, and but if it's not actually showing to saving lives, couldn't that $1.5 billion be spent right. in a way where we could, um, uh, you know, and so there's, there's, uh, you know, I mean, we just need to, I mean, it's possible that before a vaccine, we will have an effective treatment by effective treatment when actually reduces the risk of death. We do not have that yet. Um, we do have a, a decreasing number of, the, even though we have an increasing number of cases in the U.S., deaths have gone down and flattened, and largely that's because younger people are becoming affected now. As mm. soon as the kind of relaxation, social distancing, people getting in bars, and uh, younger populations are getting, so the cases are scouring, but mortality is still staying relatively low. Um, and the, in large part, that's because younger younger populations right. are getting affected. What are some of the wrongheaded kind of ideas that you see percolating around, like in the news cycle, you read, oh, you know, we should do this, we should do that, or, and you just think, why are, you know, this is not right. Like, all we need to do is this. Like, yeah. I'm trying to give people, um, you know, just some really tacit advice that yeah. um, I mean, so, can I, alleviate I, yeah. some of the confusion. I mean, look, in the nutrition space, we know of just the crazy ideological frenzy by which people attached onto crazy ideas, right? And defend them at all costs and the confirmation bias. But I have never seen the kind of crazy that I've seen in response to, so now I have a whole series of COVID-19 videos. Mm -hmm. I kind of switched the research team to be working on, uh, on, so we have like a series of 17 videos or something. And the response, now I put up a video saying broccoli's good. I, I get the trolls come out. I mean, you know, <laughs> it does not take much, uh -huh. but- but it's at a whole new level the, now, the, my the, friend. Because uh, you hit yeah. a you hit a nerve with this, it is, right? So, so I am a China operative one moment, and uh, you know whatever. A, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the Bill Gates five G, you know Soros yeah. axis of you know Illuminati here, and and that and and I think a lot of that comes from just this terrible crisis communication at the highest level. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, or the, a concerted the worst thing effort you do, to weaponize misinformation oh, and create well, yeah. division because yeah, yeah. this is something that should not be politicized and it's been unbelievably politicized. Uh, to a level that I think surprises everybody. Like, I mean, that, 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 I mean, that's kind of a consistent message. So not much surprised the public health community who the whole time could write uh, just a big, carry a big, I told you so sign all day long, every day. Um, but that's something that really has um, surprised. And look, there's always been scapegoating. For so you know the, the you know the so-called Spanish flu of 1918. The only reason they called it the Spanish flu was because that was a neutral country, and so it was the only one that didn't have wasn't censoring the news. And so everyone out the U.S. is like, we don't have any flu, the, the, you mm -hmm. know. And the Germans were, we don't have any flu. So they, I mean, it just got out. But of course, in Spain, they called it the French flu, and you know, I mean. And there's always scapegoating of Jews during, during you know, horrible epidemics. There's always been this kind of nasty, uh, something about crises like this that kind of bring out the worst in people as well as the best in people. Um, but yeah, but this, this is certainly at a level under, and so that just makes it even more important to get information from, you know, decent sources. And I think we have this, there's this like, well, look, you do your research, I'll do my research right. kind of thing. Like, 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 as if, like, what exactly is your research? Like, you do your says, Google says search. the guy in his I'll mom's basement to the guy who spent his entire life exactly, studying this. Exactly, right. right. I mean, so this really shows the, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm as opposed to as anyone, this kind of, I told you so because I'm an authority. Kind of, I mean, we've seen where that has gotten us in trouble, but 
we should, when someone says I'm an authority, you say, show me your sources. Like you weren't born with this information. How did you come across this? Mm. And and argue to me why this really is the best. And any expert worth their salt should be able to say, this is how I arrived. Here's the data. Here's the science that shows that this is the right course of action. Um, and, but I mean, that should be the, for whether you're talking about nutrition, whether you're talking, show me the data. Where did you get this from? Mm -hmm. um, did you get it from your tinfoil hat friend? Someone told you at the gym or, you know, some checkout aisle magazine telling you this, or did it actually have some basis? In, I mean, if there's any decision to be made based on science, based on the best available balance of evidence, it's something that affects the health and well-being of yourself and your family. I mean, that, I mean, that should have a different bar of evidence than an Amazon review for a new toaster. Like, I mean, that's like, right. the, in that case, opinions of total strangers could be useful for you. Oh, you liked it because, oh, okay, thank you, right? But we've gotten to this culture of just like, oh, random strangers have ideas that are useful to me and, and, and somehow translated that into- Well, yeah, we've, yeah. we've arrived at this moment where for whatever reason, we've developed this profound distrust mm -hmm. of, of experts. And that's highly problematic in terms of seeing our way forward as a society, not just experts in science, but experts across the board and mm -hmm. you know, a wide variety of disciplines. To, in their defense, in the, in the defense of that, is experts have done a terrible job. I mean, so the, right. the so the corporate well, world. Well, this is a shit show. So right, we're giving people plenty of reason to distrust the experts. Right. And historically, I mean, it was the, it was the the tobacco industry that weaponized first weaponized mm. science, and it is the tobacco industry textbook that has been used by every corporate entity from then on. Our whether you're talking about the sugar down. industry, whether you're talking, it's all about. They realize that policy is being made based on the science. And so you you control the science, you control the mess. And so there was the Tobacco uh, Research Institute. They funded millions of dollars, paid off the AMA. And so when the AMA says smoking moderation is good for you on balance, not just neutral, but actually smoking is good for you. Most doctors smoked. So, and now we say, trust the experts, right? right. I mean, you understand yeah. why, yeah, why yeah, wait yeah. a second, the yeah. experts are saying that Coca-Cola was good for me. Um, and that's because of the corporate takeover over science, evidence-based medicine, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is good reason to be skeptical when these decisions are made um, where there's industry stakes by the billions. So something like, should we get mammograms? Okay, that should seem like a simple question of the science. When, when there's a billion-dollar industry, then you need to, you need to not just take the experts word for it, but really dig into the science, mm -hmm. right? If it's a question where there really is no, you know, climate change, when there's a billion dollar industry on one side of the issue, you always have to question until you see what the best available balance of evidence is. And so the industry, so you can see how that, that uh, skepticism of big pharma completely based in, I mean, we've been right, screwed over a, by big pharma over and point. over. Um, so, in fact, the Tamiflu fiasco. Who stands to benefit? In 2006, um, in my book on pandemic preparedness um, and, and preparation bay, way back then, I talked about the wonders of this drug, Tamiflu, and how you should, you know, talk to your doctor about getting you a prescription of, of this drug because there were 11 randomized controlled trials that showed that it significantly decreased mortality and morbidity, from, it saved lives from the flu. Um, and, I, and so the science 
in the peer-reviewed literature was absolutely dead on clear. Roche, one of the biggest drug companies in the, in the world, had, they of course funded them, all 11 studies, but that's what drug companies do. It's kind of the only industry we put in charge of their uh -huh. own self-regulation. But, I mean, but this wasn't some fly-by-night company. This was, you know, companies have been around. Okay. And so then, so here I am writing the update. Right oh, 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 for 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 how for how to survive a pandemic. So I'm looking at the Tamiflu chapters. Oh, what's what's been happening Tamiflu lately? Right in 2009 with swine flu, um, the uh, the uh, a group of scientists, Cochrane Collaboration, kind of the gold standard of evidence based medicine. Well, let's review what's happening in Tamiflu because with swine flu, there were governments were making billions of dollars of purchases of this drug for their national stockpiles, um, and some uh, some pediatrician in Japan said, uh, just said, oh, there's these 11 trials. Um, can we see the data, please? And went to Roche and said, let's see the data, the 11 trials. If you say there's 11 trials, they all show that reducing. And Roche refused to give them the data. Mm. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Now, at the time, way back when, it was still early and we just believed them. Okay, but now, when they were making big purchases, okay, and they knew. Every moment they could delay re releasing the data, they could get billions more in sales. Every year, they released billions more in sales. And it took them years. And so it was only, I think, until 2014, until they finally were forced from national pressure, uh, international pressures, the scientific community to release the data. And guess what? It showed the opposite. Zero benefit in terms of mortality. But they had made this calculus. They were going to bring in so many billions of dollars that they were going to just flat out lie to the governments of the world and say they had this pandemic, this drug that was going to save people from pandemic flu and just raked in billions. And, and they knew it was based on a total lie. But And it was this one little pediatrician who's like, can we just see the data? Just like, And that's what started it all. Mm. We finally know it was, a, it was a sham. And it works like this remdesivir. It, it shortens the period, but it doesn't actually result in more in lives saved. And so now it's referred to as the Tamiflu flu fiasco. That was modern day, big pharma, pandemic drug, screwing the populace, screwing taxpayers, screwing governments the world over. And so you say, I don't believe big pharma. I'm skeptical about vaccines. That's a legitimate right. that's a legitimate place to be coming from. Right. We want the skepticism, but that skepticism shouldn't be I'm not going to let Bill Gates, you know, I, whatever Bill Gates is doing. <laughs> but I, I it should be It just makes it hard. You I want to see the data. Trust. I want to see so you need right. third but you're party. My, you you third party. Dr. Gregor right. are mired in the data. The average person is right. scrolling through their Twitter feed right. just trying to make sense of the world. Right. You mentioned Osterholm, yeah. like who are the people that we can, you know, safely pay attention to and feel confident that we're getting the right message? Who are those people in science? And who are those people in the media who are delivering this information? Like who is the measured person where we can turn on the television and not have to be, you know, cocking our, our head every time they say something and just have some level of confidence that we're getting the truth. Yeah, so there's actually been a number of journalists that have been really stellar when it comes to this. And uh, so Stat News is probably the source. So that's the source I go to. So Stat News? So Stat, Stat News, oh, S-T-A-T News, S -T -A -T news um, is kind of a medical news source that has prided itself on having a really evidence-based balanced analysis. Uh -huh. So they've probably been the done the best work, not saying everything they've they've put out um, is is right on the message, but they've really done some of the best reporting to date 
Um, and uh, and in terms of scientific entities, SIDRAP, mm-hmm. um, uh, Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, Johns Hopkins um, School of Public Health, um, has a website, puts out some excellent information. Um, uh, and so in this way, you don't have to, um, even me, look, even I, so right now, there are 800 articles in the peer-reviewed scientific um, literature coming out every day, 800 every day. And that's not talking about preprints, all the stuff in the pipeline, just being published every day. So mm-hmm. even I can't stay on top of that. And so even I have to rely on, um, uh, on this kind of collective group effort of let's all go through these 800 pages every day, papers every day and really pick out what's going to be a kind of changing in terms of practicality. What is this new information um, that's reliable? And that's where these, these, these important, mm-hmm. uh, you know, expert sources. Um, and, and the CDC, um, despite uh, some flubs early on with testing, and despite the the kind of uh, wishy-washy mask um, uh, recommendation, um, has uh, has put out some consistent mm. uh, good uh, work as well. Is there anybody just in mainstream media? Like I feel like Sanjay Gupta has been pretty mm. measured in how he's communicating around this. I mean, I you know who do you think is? Yeah, so I've I've not been following the the yeah. mainstream. Uh, who's in the mainstream? You're so just, I, I, I'm in, in the, the scientific journals. world, right? right? In the journals and and, and in the in the scientists. Uh-huh. And so right, the, unfortunately now. Um, there are people with PhDs and MDs at the end of their name, and they think all of a sudden that they're infectious disease experts or, or um, you know, aerosol um, experts or, you know, occupational safety. I mean, there are people who spend their whole lives figuring out transmission of disease, and just because you have an MD doesn't mean you're an expert in this at all. And they just keep spouting nonsense about all sorts of things and put out mathematical models that, you know, they're computer scientists. Um, and they suggest that their modeling says do this as opposed to this, where they really don't have expertise in that particular area. So even, you know, just trust the experts. It, I mean, that's not just yeah, by credentials. It's like, right. I mean, but it's people, but there are career, um, you know, scientists that this is what they've done their entire lives, like Osterholm, and they've been through it all, right? And they've, right. Um, and, and, you know, there are a few that have this, this past record of not taking the easy road of not just going along with everyone. So, for example, Osterholm is famous mm. for coming out and questioning the efficacy of flu vaccines. Mm-hmm. And so until like 2011, they did this, this uh, very influential landmark paper in The Lancet um, saying that, you know, flu, flu, we tout the flu vaccine, but it's actually based on kind of crappy testing such that if you actually use better testing, it really only works, you know, 30 50% of the time in terms of decreasing risk, 30-50%. Now, still in favor of flu vaccines, he gets it every year, but, you know, we, we need better flu vaccines. We need to communicate to the public um, what the truth is, and we need to do better. And we just keep convincing ourselves we're actually doing better than we are. We're, we're you know, that was incredibly controversial at the time. And now it's just it's just understood right. and it's kind of part of the thing. But, I mean, we can look back in history of those who are mavericks and really stuck to the science against the political winds. Um, and 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 you can always go to, to know they're not going to give you the comfortable message. They're not going to give you the message. They're not going to give you a message that they have more um, uh, certainty that, that, they, that there really is, and they're going to say they don't That's know. That's always a good signal. That's a good – I don't know. I'm not an expert in this, but let me, you know, show – you know, point you in the, in the direction of an expert in this. Yeah. I mean, and mm. this is the time, right? If there's any other issue, if it's any less important, but this is the time we really need the best information. Um, and and it's, it's really – even, right, even for me, for us, presumably, but if – 
I mean, we know the craziness on the internet, but it has reached a level. It's and it's and it's, it's, and, it's a, and it's a life and death issue, right? Thing. It is a whole new thing. Like, oh, I yeah, I was I was with you, Doctor Gerger, but now you are one of the lizard people who's gonna, you know. Well, it's a function of this intersecting with a lot of other issues that's tapping into. Uh, you know, a repressed rage that's mm. just underneath the surface. Like mm. we've all seen the videos of people, you know, losing it in Target or, yeah. you know, Trader Joe's on the whole mask thing and how mm -hmm. the mask thing has been politicized. And and uh, it's concerning, you know, because this shouldn't be a political issue. We should all be on the same page in terms of how we're navigating this. This and is the, the common interest of our society. To be kind, right? I mean, this is the mm. kind to just be extra kind and extra and to realize i mean this should wake us up to the plight of our essential workers who have basically been the, the, you know, the bottom of our society and ignored and even now ignored are they getting hazard pay for being the ones well that this are is the bigger conversation I mean, yeah. about how oh. we're structured when we realize that our essential workers are you know these people who are getting paid less than everybody else right. to perform these things that are required to keep our the gears of our society moving we need to reform how we're treating yeah. these people. So this could be the, I mean, so we it can is use this an as opportunity. an example. Right. This is the opportunity, although, yeah, but but it's, yeah, it's bringing the best and worst. And I'm afraid at this point, the worst is overtaking. There were some beautiful best at the beginning, the clapping for the healthcare workers yeah. and all, I mean, all this the singing. Like, oh, but they, yeah, but now they, and, and, and yeah. There's a half-life on that stuff. Uh, but I remain optimistic and we're gonna land this plane. I think, I think, you know, listen, get your sleep, eat your veggies, make sure you're getting enough vitamin D, B12, whatever it is. Like, what else? Like, what are the simple things? Like, wear your mask in public. Wear your mask in public. Sign of respect, right? Because I am keeping you safe. That's what the mask says. I care about you. And if there's one thing we need right now in society is more messages, I care about my fellow human being. Mm. It's a good place to end it, I think. I love you, my friend. Thank you so much. Ah. Come back anytime. I think we should do a check-in every six months or uh, so. I don't have to come you're out with a new book. Here. Just to, all right. <laughs> well, the, at the rate that you're cranking these books <laughs> right. out, you're gonna you're gonna be back here in next month. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, the book is called How to Survive a Pandemic. It's out now in audiobook and an ebook, right? Hardcover is coming out when in the fall? August 16th. Oh, no, August, August 16th. 16th. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Soon. Amazing, man. So Pick it up, Amazon. Oh, it's on your, is it, you get either Amazon or on your website? Oh, Amazon, facts, any wherever. online retailer. Cool, thank you. All right, peace, plants. How'd you guys like that blast? Are you feeling okay? How is the noodle doing? That was a lot. Things are heavy right now. Please make sure you're taking good care of yourself and those you love. I hope Dr. Greger's wisdom was helpful and will help guide you more effectively through all of this. And meanwhile, try to be nice out there. Kindness is key. Let Dr. Greger know how this one landed for you. You can find him on Instagram at MD and at nutrition underscore facts on Twitter. Check out his new book, How to Survive a Pandemic on Audible and Kindle. And of course, links to everything we discussed today can be found in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. 
If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and Spotify. Share the show or your favorite episode or this episode with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I appreciate my team who works very hard to put the show on every week. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's podcast. Jessica Miranda for graphics. DK for advertiser relationships. And theme music by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here next week with another mind-blowing episode. I'm not going to let the secret out, but it's a good one. Until then, be kind, be nice, peace, plants, namaste, wear a mask. Yeah.